Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Amy Bender. Dr. Bender received her PhD and Master's of Science degrees in experimental psychology from Washington State University, specializing in sleep EEG. She has developed sleep um, intervention protocols for numerous Canadian national sports teams. Her research interests stem from being an athlete herself, and she was inducted into the Community Colleges of Spokane Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 2014 and has completed an Ironman in 2009. Amy, thank you so much for coming on to today. Thanks for having me. Sorry if um, I didn't say sp- is it Spokane or Spokane? You got it right. You got it right. Surprisingly, it's Spokane. <laughs> okay, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen it before and I was like, oh, is it Spokane or can? But uh, <laughs> nice work. Cool. Um, so you're a uh, sleep scientist and I love sleep and hopefully everyone else listening to the show <laughs> appreciates sleep. And particularly because sleep falls in, into the realm of recovery science. And I've always kind of felt that we we focus a lot on activity and performance or uh, growth, but recovery science is sort of, I don't know, is it like a neglected science that people don't take it as seriously as they should? I think so. I mean, it's starting to become uh, up and coming as, so if you look at sports teams and athletes, they're certainly looking at sleep nowadays, but it's taken a while for it to get to that point. Um, I think it potentially stems from coaches, you know, concern about training and the things that they can control. Um, nutrition, you know, they can provide meals for their teams. They can control the practice plan. But when their players leave the field or the gym, you know, it, it's kind of like they're on their own, but we know that so much happens during sleep. And if you want good performance, you need to be sleeping well. Yeah, it's it. You know, the the further I've gone down the rabbit hole, I can just see how vital it is. And I mean, I'm not an uh, athlete myself, but I know if I don't sleep well, I I'm I'm not at the same level the next day, or you know, within a few days after that. So it's it's pretty obvious. Good sleep is is more is vital. Um, and I know you have a keen interest in sleep deprivation. So I was wondering if maybe you could also start um, us off. And to help the listeners understand, what is the difference between good quality sleep versus being de- deprived or sleep sleep deprivation? Well, when we look at the research, so sleep deprivation means going without sleep. Um, so it's typically, you know, pulling an all-nighter, um, maybe even multiple nights. So I worked on a study where we kept participants up for two full nights uh, without sleep. A 62-hour sleep deprivation period. Um, so when you're talking about sleep deprivation, it means completely without sleep. And then there are more uh, realistic studies looking more at sleep restriction, which is where, um, you know, a more realistic situation where you might go to bed late and wake up early and only get five hours of sleep. Um, maybe across the week. So uh, sleep restriction is more of that realistic, although, you know, there are people that do pull all-nighters during the Mm -hmm. day. But when we think about sleep, we always, I always think of three main factors. So we're thinking about sleep quantity. So the amount of sleep that you're getting across a 24-hour day. And, you know, that includes nighttime sleep as well as napping. And then we also think about quality as well. So, you know, I could tell you to get 10 hours of sleep per night, but if you're not getting good quality sleep and you're waking up potentially from an underlying sleep disorder, that's not going to be much of benefit. So we need to worry about quality as well. And then timing. So does your sleep align with your chronotype, your preference to be a morning type or an evening type? So those those are the three main factors um, when we're looking to improve someone's sleep. Okay, and I, I like that. I didn't quite realize. So, so technically, deprived is is more um, hardcore. 
versus restriction. And I'm pra- I'm just practically thinking that a lot of people then are probably more in the restriction phase where they end up sleeping just half an hour to an hour less than they should mm-hmm. because of different factors. Maybe they have to be up early for work or they end up be- going to bed later because they're trying to get chores done or something. And so is that more the case than that people are losing that hour, half an hour, maybe a little bit more every day until the weekend and thinking, I'll I'll catch it all up on the weekend? Yes. So, sleep restriction is much more common than sleep deprivation. I mean, if you think about it yourself, when was the last time you pulled an all-nighter? You know, maybe not until college or... um, And so, sleep restriction is certainly more common. So, it's that sleep debt that builds up across the week. And then, like you said, a lot of people try and make up for that on the weekend. Um, and what we see is that it, it's called social jet lag when there's um, a large variability between what your sleep is like during the week versus the weekend. Okay. And it's it's been associated with, with many different um, factors. So the more social jet lag you have, so the more variability in your sleep times across the week, the more likely you are to be have depression, um, performance issues, because your body just isn't, it doesn't really know when I should be sleeping and when I should be awake if it, if it varies by a lot across the week. Yeah, actually, before um, our interview today, I was speaking with a guy who does neurofeedback training, brain training, and he had a client who was trying a Silicon Valley developer, and I'd never heard of this before. So maybe you've heard the um, people trying to do this, um, where he was say sleeping only three to five hours a night during the week and then he'd try to do a 12-hour stint to try catch up and bank and i just thought i don't know i don't that doesn't (laughs) i don't think from what i understand from following your tweets too it's like you can't bank and fix all that debt with it with one 12-hour sleep can you no, I mean, there's there's a lot of um, myths out there. Um, polyphasic sleep, where you only sleep for ni- in ninety minute increments. Um, that's that's a big myth out there. And there's actually sleep calculators that try and calculate based on your wake up time, subtracting in ninety minute increments what time you should go to bed, and it's complete crap. Um, so what you really want to want to do for a healthy, good sleep is to try and get that good quantity and quality and timing um, every night if possible. And, and you, you need to be flexible as well. So we like to think in terms of weekly sleep need. So can you get your weekly sleep need across the week? So if I need to stay up late to work um, on a project, can I make up for that across the week by maybe taking a nap the next day or going to bed earlier? Um, so I think just trying to get in a good amount across the week and to be flexible and make up for maybe some of that lost sleep when you can't get it. So when life happens like that and you have a you know i'm also thinking where people have a midweek a social do and they end up going out later than they usually do um it so it would be okay to then have a nap or just that would uh, it, it would allow you to catch up from one night where you went to bed later than normal but if it was continuous then you need some you need to be banking sleep much longer than that that those naps aren't going to cut it yeah, yeah. If it's um, if it's a situation, let's say we take a national team swimmer who has to get up at five thirty in the morning, and we work with a lot of athletes like that, where the training times are restricted due to pool availability, and so in that type of instance, they simply can't go to bed early enough um, because you know, let's say they get up at 5 a.m., they need to go to bed at 8 p.m. potentially to get enough sleep if we're working with an adolescent athlete. And that's just simply not, it's not in line with biology. So for that type of individual, we would try and have regular napping um, around 90 minutes during the day 
so that they can make up for some of that lost sleep at night so that their total 24 hour is within a normal range. Um, if you're, if you have a very high workload, uh, let's say just someone's working on a big project and they're going multiple nights, you know, four hours a night for three, four nights in a row, it would certainly take more than 12 hours, you know, hmm. to recover from that. And also, I'm I'm guessing other factors that would affect the, your recovery abilities, because if you're doing that kind of thing, you're red bulling or you're caffeining up with things or sugar, uh, just different things to help keep you awake and keep you stimulated. And I guess would there sort of be like a detox moment too after that, that you're trying to recover from? Absolutely. So if you're taking caffeine, if you're even being exposed to bright light at night, it's going to suppress that melatonin and um, decrease sleep quality. So it would definitely take a lot longer depending on what you're doing. If you're having caffeine, if you're being exposed to bright light um, to recover versus someone who just is staying up later and not necessarily having a bunch of caffeine and a bunch of light um, activity. But um, in, in some of our, I worked on a study early on where we did um, three bouts of 36 hours of sleep deprivation. So a participant would come in, they would sleep. Um, this particular study was 12 hours time in bed. So they would come in, they would get 12 hours sleep opportunity for two nights in a row, and then they would skip a full night of sleep. And then they would have two more opportunities of 12 hours. And what we're finding is that that first 12 hour opportunity after the sleep deprivation period wasn't quite enough for them to recover. But if they got two nights of 12 hour time in bed, that they, at the end of that, they were starting to recover, but then we would hit them again with another sleep deprivation period. Um, so it, it can take quite a bit to get back up to normal, um, depending on what you're doing during that sleep deprivation. And then I guess age is a big factor. You already touched on that with the swimmer. So if you've got a, a teenage, adolescent swimmer, um, your in your teenage years, your sleep quantity is different versus um, if you're in your twenties, thirties, forties, and your and is is that the case too? Absolutely. Um, the younger you are, so teens need between eight and ten hours of sleep per night, and we think that athletes actually need more. Um, so the recommendation, teenager, eight to 10 hours for a normal adult, um, between seven and nine hours. And then when you get up to, I would, I think it's about 65, then that the range, um, drops from seven to eight hours. So typically if you're an adult, you're between that seven to nine hour range, but then adolescents need a lot more and we think athletes need more to be able to recover from the physical and mental demands of the sport. Well, and with your intro, I, I mentioned how you've done um, a triathlon and Ironman and I've come across so many people who end up wanting to do that as a goal and, so, and they're working full-time jobs. And their schedule is so hectic. It's, you know, they have to be up at the crack of dawn, you know, and then they're training X amount and they're still trying to get a run in after work. And then, you know, life when you get home in the evening. And is that, a, a, again, a situation where you get chronic sleep restriction? Like, I mean, if you're saying, especially if you're training that hard, I mean, even a 30-year-old athlete who's weekend warrior who's trying to do their first mm -hmm. Ironman, how much would they would need a little bit more sleep again, would they? Yeah, they would need more than someone who's just um, working a nine-to-five job and maybe exercising 30 minutes three times a week. Um, yeah, it, they. we think, I mean, this is uh, open for debate, but we think, I mean, just on my own experience doing the Ironman, it, I slept for literally like 10 hours a night for 10 days after that event because my body just needed to recover from that. And there's been only one study in, I believe it was marathon runners where they found that they slept more after the event. So we, if we take that, um, we think that athletes need more sleep in order to recover from that. And 
And yes, an athlete training for an Ironman is probably going to need more sleep than if you weren't training. But it is challenging. I mean, there's so many different things to juggle. Um, it's about balancing sleep with training. So, you know, potentially are there some times where maybe sleeping in or recovering from the training is more beneficial than getting up early and restricting that sleep time and time again. Mm. And that's where um, I mentioned about recovery science because um, I'm originally from South Africa and I was reading about rugby teams and um, I can't remember the article, but it was about recovery science and saying that that exact thing where you could have sort of data and information to go, you know what, this athlete today shouldn't come to training or they need to be on a different training protocol because they haven't recovered properly from Saturday's match, for example. Um, so to prevent injuries and it, and it sounds like that is that's our team starting to you are they able to use that information to sort of adjust if you're even if you're in a team situation i think so i think the teams that um are doing that are are right on top of you know the future and what needs to happen um it's there's a question like does does it translate directly? You know, it, are you more, if I don't get that good night's sleep, am I more at risk for injury? Um, those kind of things. So it's, it's challenging because there's not a direct relationship, I would say, yeah. but, um, I think teams are starting to look at that. And I was just looking at some data that I had today from a study we did in speed skaters and we we're looking at jet lag and they were traveling from, Calgary to China. And I, I pulled two examples from that. And it was interesting to me the difference in how they adapted to jet lag. So I had one example where they pretty much adapted right away. Maybe on the second day, they were sleeping consolidated um, according to the new time zone. But then I, I looked at a different example where they woke up in the middle of their night in China and was up for two to three hours. Um, the next night they got decent amount of sleep and following that they woke up again in the middle of the night. So I, I think it's kind of interesting, um, uh, you know, being able to use that information and be able to make recommendations. Hmm. And, um, uh, that was also, uh, you know following your your tweets are fascinating because I know you do work with uh, the national teams and um, you you were even the Canadian national team at the re recent Winter Olympics they they were timing because um, the events were late at night weren't they and it wasn't in sync with when they were sleeping back home in Canada or something and so some teams were purposely. Oh, like jet lagging yeah. themselves and i was like what is going on in sleep science this is interesting <laughs> um yeah it was actually the u.s uh, ski jumpers so there was this piece that came out showing that they were purposefully arriving at the event um right before and that it was actually a benefit for them to be jet lagged going into this performance um because then they don't think about the event so much. It's more of that motor memory. Um, you know, ski jumping is pretty challenging and mentally. So um, I, I, I completely disagree with that type of approach. Um, but as it turned out, the way it worked out for this team, I mean, I, I don't think the approach worked for them. I don't think they, maybe one person qualified for the finals. Um, but as it worked out, where they were coming from in Europe, um, the timing of where they were coming from to the timing of the event, the event was really late at 10 p.m. It, it actually could potentially be a benefit for them to show up right before the event because it would be more of a, a performance, like a biological internal time that's better than if they're... Um, trying to compete at 10 p.m. and uh, melatonin is kicking in. So it didn't really work out for them, but um, it, I think that's an interesting approach for someone to um, think about that and think about their internal time um, 
versus the destination time and the timing of the event. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's sleep hacking at, at the extreme. They're trying to figure out like, hey, should we play with this and tweak with this and actually come in jet lagged? <laughs> I th- in one way, I guess it's good that um, people are testing things. So you can sort of say, hey, no, yes, uh, maybe <laughs> so. Um, but coming back to sleep restriction and deprivation, then, uh, what would you say are some easy telltale signs that you are in that situation? Yeah, so I like to um, think about, do you get up without an alarm clock uh, is a big one. So that relates to, are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting good quality sleep? And then is the timing of your sleep in line as well? So not needing that alarm clock to get up is a good sign that you're getting good quantity, quality, and timing. Um, Also... Do you not need tons of caffeine during the day to kind of keep you awake? Are you alert throughout the day is a good sign. And then the other one, you know, as I mentioned previously with social jet lag, um, are your sleep time, so your bedtime and your wake time consistent across the week? Or are you sleeping in on the weekends? And so that could be a sign that maybe you're not getting enough sleep during the week. Okay. And I think a lot of people think it's healthy to sleep in on the weekends to try catch up, but the science is, the sleep science is saying maybe actually, unfortunately, if you get up at a certain time during the week, you still need to get up on the weekend at that time. Within about an hour. Um, recently there was some data from Fitbit and they looked at, um, bedtime consistency and, they had 8 billion nights of data. And what they showed was that those who were consistent, if you look at the graph, this is kind of my own interpretation of me just looking at the graph. But uh, if you look at the graph, it looked like within about an hour. So if your bedtime doesn't vary by more than an hour across the week, you these people got 30 minutes more of sleep versus someone who's varied, varied by more than two hours. So, and I think that points points to um, just your body and your rhythms and your brain knowing when I should be sleeping and when I should be awake versus someone who goes to bed at midnight on, you know, Monday through Friday, but then on Saturday and Sunday, they wake up or they go to bed at 3 a.m. and then it's harder for them to fall asleep Sunday night. And, you know, there's not a lot of consistency and the body doesn't really know when they should be sleeping and awake. Mm. So the wake time is potentially more important than the time you actually go to bed. This, um, this uh, typically in the in the research we we or the typical advice is make sure you keep your wake time consistent, so you're getting up time consistent. Um. But this study with Fitbit showed, I don't know if they looked at wake time, but it showed that the bedtime needed to be consistent. Uh. Um, so trying to not vary your bedtimes and your wake times by more than an hour is, is a really good piece of advice. Okay, so it's either side. It's the bedtime and the wake time. So if, if um, 10 o'clock is your normal bedtime when you go to sleep, it's... Uh, with an hour, practically, does that mean either 9 p.m. or 11 p.m.? Mm-hmm. Or would it be the two polar opposites of that time of the middle, which is 10? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah, because um, uh, melatonin, you know, is being released. And so if someone's trying to go to bed too early, it's not going to be in line with their melatonin, mm. and um, which might wake them up in the middle of the night. And same goes if you go to bed too late. Um, it's not necessarily in line with with your melatonin, and the, and the light from staying up too late um, is going to shift your melatonin and suppress your melatonin. So yeah, trying not to vary within by more than an hour, both early and late, is is important. Mm. And yeah, I, I I've seen it on some of the sleep forums and groups there where people are trying to improve their sleep, and a lot of people then talk about supplements and this and that and a whole bunch of other things. But I, th- it, after listening to you, I kind of think the 
the primary, the foundation there should be what time do you go to sleep? What time do you go to bed? Just look at those two factors. And if they're too variable, then that's already where you want to begin hacking and fixing things and trying to improve things and, and build upon that. Exactly. So a lot, I'm, I get a lot of times I'll tell someone I'm, you know, a sleep scientist and they'll say, Oh, I sleep like crap. I think I need to get a new mattress <laughs> is one of the um, things that I hear a lot. And it's like, no, you need to start with the basics. You need to start with the low hanging fruit. It's not a mattress is not going to make a difference in, you know, the quantity and quality of your sleep as long as it's comfortable. Um, so definitely start with that low hanging fruit, um, making that bedtime consistent. And then also, you know, doing some of those sleep hygiene tips to try and get better quality sleep. So putting away those electronic devices, avoiding caffeine afternoon, um, not drinking alcohol right before bed. Those are some, some basic tips that people can start with. Mm -hmm. And you, yeah, the melatonin that you mentioned earlier and how it is affected by light and particularly because we live in a lot of artificial blue light now. And I saw the Canadian teams are starting to wear a lot of blue blocking glasses um, to try and protect themselves, I believe. I saw that mm -hmm. was quite, quite popular. Um, so how, how, yeah. so how strong or how quickly will your melatonin like secretion timing or amount be affected by artificial light. Um, I'd be quite interested if if there is if they've looked at that. Like if I'm because I know it's it's meant to be two hours or so before bedtime that you want to start wearing the glasses or minimizing mm -hmm. your light exposure. Um, so, uh, but if you don't do that and you do it for multiple nights in a row, does that sort of like change how your melatonin secretion cycle works? Absolutely. Um, melatonin is released uh, typically about two hours before your normal bedtime. And if you, let's say you get bright light, you know, the days are getting lighter here in Canada. We're pretty far up north. Um, but it can certainly impact your light exposure, can impact your melatonin. So, the number one, um, Zeitgeiber. So it's a, a, cue for your body uh, circadian system is light. And this, if you think about it, um, light, our, our circadian system is not exactly 24 hours. So the majority of us have a circadian clock or an internal rhythm that is greater than 24 hours. And then there are people who have circadian clocks less than 24 hours. And light is the is the regulator that helps regulate our circadian rhythm. And so getting that bright light in the morning is going to be helpful at keeping us on a regular schedule. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we're not exactly on a 24 hour uh, cycle. Mm -hmm. And so it goes the same, um, getting bright light at night is going to suppress that melatonin when it's starting to ramp up. And, um, delay our circadian rhythm. So melatonin, the light will suppress the melatonin, it'll reduce the melatonin, but then it'll also delay the melatonin release. So if I did that for four nights in a row where I'm getting bright light right before bedtime, it's likely that on that fifth night, I'm not going to feel tired at my normal time. It's going to be much later where that melatonin will be released. And this is a strategy we use for our Canadian teams and any um, people traveling west. We want to get them that light in the evening so that it will help shift their rhythms more in line with the destination. Okay, so you let them play with Facebook at night then? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> we um we uh technically we want them using light books. Um but sure, yeah, get on those devices. I'll, that'll be the only time I'll allow you to get on your device before bed is if you're traveling west. I'm also thinking um have 
in in the sleep science world then talking about devices because when you're playing with your facebook they're they're like dopamine responses they they they're designed social media um, accounts are designed to stimulate that reward system that dopamine system compared to tv which would be a different i don't know is would it if um if i'm exposing myself to watching tv at night versus playing on my phone because it's it's both a bright light but now that the phone is working on another hormone would it Mm, yes that's a good point the type of device that you're using is important and the activities you're doing on the device is important so um tv far away it has to, so if we, if we look at the light exposure, it's how close is it to your eye? How bright is it? Um, so a TV is much further away. And so it's, it's not as bad for you if you're using a tablet or a cell phone right in front of your face. But then it also has to do with the interaction. So you mentioned the dopamine, um, how, can be stimulating. It's not just about the blue light. It's about the interaction and the arousal from what you're looking at. Hmm. Um, and then it also has the delaying quality. So um, you're on it, you're on it, you're on it. And then, you know, you don't want to put it away. And so that it also has to do with that as well, um, that you're not getting as much sleep because you're on it for longer and you get distracted and you know, don't want to put mm. it away. Because you, when you were mentioning about uh, using light to shift, um, I this is probably a question you've had before, but, you know, so many people will tell you, but I need to have the TV on to ha- fall asleep. <laughs> 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 you've had this question loads of times. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's not a good thing. Well, number one, you shouldn't have a TV in your bedroom. So, um, getting the TV out of the bedroom is, is important. And then, yeah, just the best thing to do is to, to stop using electronic devices at least an hour before bedtime and kind of replacing that with relaxing activities. So taking a warm bath, uh, reading from a paper book, doing breathing, doing stretching to prepare your mind and your body for sleep. So is, is, is that what's going on in our brains when we're trying to use a TV to fall asleep that we're, we're trying to change our brainwave activity, like trying to calm it down to a different level? Is that what's helping there? Um, I'm yeah, just wondering. That's interesting. Um, I, it could be. It could be you're just... Um you're just used to having that noise in the background. And, um, I mean, for that type of person, if it's working for you, you know, think that I think there could be consequences from the light and from the Mm. the noise, but, um, it's not the worst thing in the world that you could do having a TV on in the background. Well, those tips that you were mentioning there, um, with a paper book and calming your mind. It's just because at the moment I'm for the first time in my life, I'm really practicing meditation because I'm doing it with my neurofeedback training experiment. And I have caught myself thinking, wow, you know, I, my mind is busy at times. And so I can see how we struggle to, to sort of quiet the monkey as they always say. And that's what I'm thinking that some people maybe really struggle at night and they rely on a third party source like a TV to get rid of the monkey to help them Mm -hmm. drift away maybe too. That's maybe a reason. Yeah, that could be. Um, But I, I would argue, you know, can you replace that with, with a, a good bedtime routine, a good pre-sleep routine. So, putting away the devices, turning off the TV an hour before bedtime. And then can you prepare for the next day? So get your clothes ready, get your um, lunch packed so that you can sleep in longer during the Mm -hmm. day. Can you move some of those activities you're doing in the morning to the evening? And then, you know, the last 20 minutes before bedtime, really relax, even meditation potentially, um, reading a paper book, which has been shown it only takes six minutes of reading to um, 
activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Oh, wow. And then um, another interesting thing that I recently learned is, is writing a to-do list. So writing a to-do list, um, even a, a journal and that type of thing can offload those thoughts that you have and that busy brain that you have right before bedtime. And it can kind of, it just kind of offloads the thoughts, puts them away, and then you can just focus on um, getting to sleep quicker. So I like that tip you shared already there. So it's not just the act of reading something. Again, you know, because someone might have a e-reader of some sort. It's it's if it's like that paper quality, it actually calms you, puts you in that parasympathetic state, and you say, "Wow, six minutes to get a nice little calming relaxation buzz in your nervous yeah, system." Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, I recently started reading before bed, regardless of what time I go to bed. So um, I'll try and put the my phone away and I keep my phone outside of my room. I keep it in the kitchen area. And so I'll put my phone away and then I'll do some, I try to do some of that pre sleep routine. Um, but regardless, like even if I'm working late or something, I'll automatically read before bed, no matter what, because I think it just sets me up for that routine and to just get to sleep really quickly. Um, I think, I think there's something to that. So I think there's something to not being as anxious about how much sleep I'm getting, the qual, like you need to let go as mm. to a certain extent, um, and be flexible across the week. And so I think for myself, it's like I could get five minutes more extra of sleep. But I prefer to kind of get that reading in and I feel like it really sets me up for for some good quality sleep. So as a sleep scientist, do you track your own sleep with any of these popular sleep tracking devices? I currently am not tracking my sleep. Um, my son is eight months old, so I... Um, oh, not a good time to track sleep. <laughs> I, actually, um, I actually track my sleep from the day he was born until he was about five months old or so. And so I was really interested in, in how that uh, pattern changed. Um, so I was tracking my own sleep and then I was also tracking his sleep. And I think eventually I'll probably do something with, with that data. But um, at the moment I don't, I'm not wearing any sleep trackers or anything along those lines. Um, I just try and set, like I try and have, uh, an alarm go off about an hour before bedtime and then um, just try and get enough sleep and good quality. And then if I'm not, if I have something I need to do, then I try and make up for the lost sleep across the week. Did, did you mention there that you have something that notifies you an hour before you go to sleep that you actually, that's, I haven't heard of that, that you actually use a notification before you go to sleep. Yeah, no, I think it's a great tip for people to set a bedtime alarm. So set a pre-sleep routine alarm about an hour before bed, have it go off every day. And then it's kind of like, all right, that I need to you. start preparing for bedtime and, you know, get off the phones and um, really try and get that routine going. So it's like Pavlov's dog and you hear that buzzer and, you know, put the, put the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's a great tip. That, that would be an interesting way of breaking a habit or training, yeah, training your, your, your sleep to be different. Because I guess uh, I, we haven't touched too much on it. We're, we've been using that big word circadian, which is body clock. Um, how would someone know what their circadian, their their natural body clock timing is? How would is it just through a questionnaire, or could they use sleep tracking data to figure that out? How would would you give any tips on that? Um, you know, it's 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 pretty um it's pretty challenging to figure out exactly when my melatonin is being released, or am I a morning type, or am I an evening type? Because there can be a discrepancy between when you go to sleep and when you fall asleep and when your melatonin is being released, we call that phase angle. So there was a study um, looking at an insomniacs and what they found was that about a quarter of them weren't, um, they were trying to go to sleep, let's say at 10 PM, 
but their melatonin wasn't being released until much later. And so there can be a discrepancy between what your melatonin is doing and what your sleep-wake behaviors are. So it is pretty challenging, but I would say um, if you take a period where you're on vacation, you don't have any constraints, you aren't consuming a lot of alcohol um, a lot of the time, and what does your body naturally, when do you normally, when do you feel sleepy at night and when do you wake up during the day? And that can kind of maybe average that across a four or five day period. And that can kind of give you an idea of, of the best timing for you. Okay. So using a, a holiday period as a time to, re- to sort of try track yourself and see, okay, without all these other stimuluses and sort of external pressures that I'm trying to keep to what does my body want to actually do and maybe that's more my natural body clock exactly because you know as I mentioned earlier light is the most potent regulator of our circadian rhythm so um, you can train yourself to be more of that morning type by just getting bright light exposure as soon as you wake up which I think is a good thing for for people who are more that evening type, that they have to get up for work or school or, you know, training or whatever, um, to use light to your advantage. So to block light at night, um, block the blue light from the devices, block the bright light as much as you can so that your melatonin will start ramping up and then getting light early in the morning, um, will be important. Okay, so, uh, so that because I know in the biohacking community, some people have done that questionnaire um, about um, bears and dolphins that cr- to try try chronotype. You, you don't think <laughs> I'm not for, a fan. you're not a fan? Okay, <laughs> I'm not a fan. I um I looked into that a little bit, and I don't I don't think the whole bear thing and adding in all of these animals is really related to research much. Um, typically it's just what we see in the research. You are about 15% are morning types, 15% are evening types. And then the rest of us fall in the intermediate range. So, um, and that's, um, based on, there are questionnaires like that. So there's the composite scale of morningness, which is the questionnaire I use in my research. Um, so I guess if anyone's interested in using that type of questionnaire, they could probably get a hold of that to kind of see where they fall. Are they more of that evening or morning type or do they fall within that intermediate range? So can I link to that questionnaire? Is it sure, yeah. available? I'll, um, I'll get you... I'll get you the the one I'm talking about. I think I think it's freely available. Okay. Well, yeah. If it is, then I'm anyone listening. I will link to that in the show notes if you want to do that survey. Okay. Uh, so, when you were um, also talking about um, the we're talking about circadian biology, but there's another thing which is sleep pressure, or is is the word homeostatic. And so we've so, sort of got these two forces in us where it's what's your body clock saying and what's your sleep needs saying, I guess, mm-hmm. the, your, your actual f- – mm-hmm. could you maybe just sort of explain how we can tie those two together better? Sure, yeah. So um, there are two main processes that regulate sleep and wake, uh, the homeostatic process, which is sleep pressure. So as the day – as you are awake – the longer you're awake, the higher the pressure for sleep. So if um, a person goes to bed around 10 p.m., they're going to be at their highest level at 10 p.m. And if they were to actually stay up later, they would build more and more sleep pressure until they do fall asleep. And then it would it would decline. And then in the morning after they've gotten a sufficient amount of sleep, their sleep pressure would be really low. And that also can apply to napping as well. So um, if you nap during the day, you're going to reduce some of that homeostatic pressure, that sleep pressure. And this is why we wouldn't want to nap, you know, 7 p.m. between. We usually recommend napping between 1 and 4 p.m. Because if you nap close to your bedtime, you're going to reduce some of that homeostatic pressure and it's going to make it harder to fall asleep. 
And this is so homeostatic pressure is based on prior sleep wake activity. And we also have the circadian system, which is independent of sleep wake history. So we have, we all have natural fluctuations in alertness and sleepiness across the day. And that doesn't, that doesn't change, um, based on prior sleep wake activity. So we'll generally feel most sleepy between the hours of 2 and 4 a.m. And then, um, also in the afternoon between 1 and 3 p.m., we'll see a bit of a circadian dip. And it's these two processes that help regulate um, when we feel sleepy and alert. And when I've been tracking my own sleep, um, I've noticed that around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning is when I usually have my lowest heart rate. Um, is that to do with that circadian that you were mentioning about that time? When is, is that why the body would want to do that when it goes into that lowest state? That's interesting. Um, I'm not, I'm not too sure. I mean, we, we, we fluctuate between non-REM and REM sleep across the night in about 90 minute increments. And that's just a rough estimate. Um, and so two to three in the morning, it kind of, it would actually depend what stage of sleep that you're in. So if you're in, it's not likely that you're in REM sleep because our heart rate varies quite a bit during that time. So it could be that you're in that deeper stage of sleep uh, at that point and the heart rate would slow during that point. But, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Um, I don't think it's necessarily related to the highest, uh, point of melatonin okay so yeah when you're when your heart's at its lowest rate isn't related to the most melatonin being released or something happening there no i don't think so i don't think so typically um in the first half of the night we'll see a lot of that slow wave sleep so the deepest stage of sleep um and so it could be that you're just falling just right at that time is when you're in that slow wave sleep. And then a lot of our REM sleep is occurring in the second half of the night. And and again, we do have short periods of REM at the beginning of the night, but it just progressively gets longer and longer as the night progresses. Yeah, I've I've seen that in my own. It's um, just trying to understand when, when I look at was it a good night or a bad night and then sort of retro looking back and, and what was happening. And yeah, all that deep happens right in the beginning half before mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. and um related to the homeostatic um pressure for sleep the longer you stay awake the more deeper sleep that you're going to have so um in those sleep deprivation studies that i worked i was in charge of scoring the sleep records, so scoring the EEGs for what stage of sleep that they're in. And it was really interesting um, how much more deep sleep that they had at the beginning of the night and for a longer chunk of time just based on the sleep deprivation that they accrued. Ah, okay. So, you know, I, before we started um, the interview, I was just mentioning how I've, I've been playing with my deep sleep and just noticing if I went to bed a little bit later, I got more deep sleep. And I'm just wondering now, so you're saying when you saw the people who were had more sleep resistance or deprivation, they, they got longer deep sleep because the body was maybe trying to recover more? Exactly. So that that could be what's going on. You're going mm. to bed a little bit later. You have more of that sleep pressure buildup, which is going to create more recovery or it's going to, you know, cause you to have more recovery. And so you're getting more of that deeper sleep based on just from staying up a little later. Because, you know, when when people start tracking their sleep, they they focus so much on how do I get more deep sleep? Because mm-hmm. deep sleep seems like the elixir. I need I need to drink as much of this stuff as possible because mm-hmm. it's so good for me. And so they're always trying to figure out how do I get more? How do I get more? Um, so would you say like you like in that case then if you are getting more by doing that slight sleep restriction? Is, I don't know. Is that? I don't think it's a good thing. No, no I don't no. think. Um, I think just trying to there are diff, there are little tiny things that you can do to get more deep sleep that's not related to sleep deprivation. Um 
but I don't. So for example, getting a, a firmer mattress or a mattress that um, wicks some of that heat away, they've actually shown that those individuals will get more deep sleep based on that. Um, I'm trying to think of, well, exercise in general will, will have you get more deep sleep. So if exercise is important, um, if you want to improve your sleep quality, cause it's gonna, it's gonna cause you to need more recovery and get more mm. of that deep sleep. Um, I'm trying to think of, of something else. Um, Sorry, just with the exercise, because there that's a big influence. In fact, if you exercise too late, then it also – So, I'm just wondering, have they found there's a particular time that's best to exercise where you can get – this is now bringing more in the performance side where I can imagine athletic teams are trying to make people bigger, stronger, but not make them do that in type of exercise that ends up disrupting their sleep. So, how do you sort of mix – the physiology of best time to train to grow bigger muscles, but best mm. time to train to also not affect your sleep. Yeah, I mean, um, typically we say two to three hours, ideally three three hours before bedtime, you want to stop the exercise. The reason for that is we um, our temperature drops when we when we go to sleep, and in line with our melatonin production. Um, so if you're exercising right before bed, your, your body temperature is going to be elevated and it's going to be much more difficult to fall asleep because we need that, um, decrease in temperature in order to, to get, to get to sleep. Mm -hmm. So ideally minimum three hours that people want to, um, avoid exercising before bedtime. And then also, you know, there's a lot of different hormones and, um, adrenaline going that kicks in when you exercise too. So it has to do a lot with that as well. Um, so certainly, yeah, trying to cut off the exercise three to four hours before bedtime is a good tip. And, and I think that's more important than, than the muscle gains or, or those type of things that you would try and do to get bigger muscles. Um, of course, I'm, just, I'm going to say sleep is more important. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking too, because you will have people who say finish work and then they hit the gym hard at six o'clock or even sometimes 7 p.m. with these 24 hour gyms or later. And then um, just thinking of that disruption that can occur from that where you're trying to squeeze in a hard workout, maybe too already way too late in the day. Um, to, and that's something to be cognizant of, to be aware of. Yeah, I think if you're more of that, if you are more of that evening type, you are going to get a better workout um, more in that late afternoon, early evening than if you are a morning type. And there's been a little bit of research in that area. Um, so if you can, if you could have it all, um, if you're that evening, you know, owl type, um, if you could time your exercise a little bit later, maybe right after right after you're done with work and then and then but also delay your bedtime a little bit more to kind of make up for that to allow yourself your body to come down and your temperature to be able to drop would be important but then you know a lot of times people can't do that because they have work commitments in the morning mm. so coming just coming back to the the, the elixir again the deep stuff um would Words, trying to know how much deep sleep I have be a way of measuring quality of sleep. So would I, so would I be able to say, okay, I'm at this age, I'm either male or female. So if I look at the graphs, then I should be getting X amount of deep sleep. But if I'm not achieving that, does that mean I'm falling short of quality sleep? I mean, we see, we see a lot of variation in the amount of, slow wave sleep or deep sleep that someone is getting and it's 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 probably partly due to genetics as well um so it's not necessarily it, it's not like if i scored a sleep study with someone who was 25 years old a male um and I compared that to a 25 year old male who's not getting as much deep sleep i don't think um there's there's not a lot that I'm 
I don't think there's that extra, that person is doing that much extra to attain that deep stages of sleep. I think it's just the way genetics works out. Um, so when you compare between people, it's, it's pretty difficult. But if you're looking, um, I think it could certainly be useful if you're comparing yourself to maybe, um, I exercised on this day. I feel much better. It looks like I got more deep sleep. Um, maybe I should exercise more. Um, I didn't drink alcohol alcohol, you know, those kind of things, I think it could be useful. Um, maybe, and even, even I was trying to think of another, um, thing that would promote more deep sleep and they've shown that fiber intake actually is related to more deeper sleep than, um, than if you don't have as much fiber. So, um, I think, I think it, it could be useful if you're comparing just to yourself and changes that you make during the day. So, so then how is sleep quality quantified? Is, is it more of a subjective thing from the person who's sleeping to say, I think I slept well? Is that how sleep quality is actually measured then in a sleep lab? So in our, so in our research, um, we find that just the answer to the question, how, what is, how do you feel about the quality of your sleep? Are you satisfied with the quality of your sleep? Is it kind of a good gauge as to whether someone is happy with their sleep? So we find that to be a good uh, question or a good predictor of of good quality sleep. So I think it, it is subjective, but, uh, it's also can be objective. So the National Sleep Foundation recently came up with some guidelines to um, answer the question, you know, what is good quality sleep? And so number one, are you falling asleep in less than 30 minutes is, is a, good, a good sign you're getting good quality sleep. But you also want to be sleeping when you're in your bed, you want to be sleeping 85% of the time. So if I'm in bed for 10 hours, I want to be sleeping for 8.5 hours. And then also you don't want to wake up more than once per night. And if you have that awakening, you don't want it to be longer than 20 minutes. So those are kind of their main um, definition of what good quality sleep is. And I think it's it's important to kind of keep that in mind um, when you think about your own sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because even when I look at my own sleep data, then the the information I get from, from my aura ring here, it says that there are times when I'm awake. Um, but I don't actually maybe consciously know that I'm awake too, but that's just a brainwave activity state is it's just, that's when you're in, you're not, is it, cause that is, is that one of the, the, um, the sleep stages that we have to go through or should we always be a good quality sleep then is always that you are in either light REM or deep. Yeah, so there are um, four main sleep stages. So there's non-REM 1, which is the lightest stage of sleep. Non-REM 2, which takes up most of our 50% of our sleep time across the night. And then non-REM 3, which is that slow wave sleep or that deep sleep. And then we also have REM sleep. So those are the four main stages that if you're in a sleep lab being hooked up to a bunch of wires... Um, those are the stages of sleep that we're going to score for. And a lot of the sleep trackers, they'll just kind of um, correlate uh, deep sleep, light sleep, and then REM sleep with what would be going on uh, if you're using polysomnography. Um, so, so yeah, it depends on, on what device you're using to track your sleep as mm-hmm. to... Um, the stage but there is a second point that you had related to that oh well yeah, it was just uh, yeah i was just mainly saying that i noticed that um the, uh, the data i'm getting says that I'm, that I'm awake but i'm not actually consciously knowing that i'm awake um so coming back to what you mentioned with the national sleep foundation saying you don't want to be awake more than once a night i, I was just thinking well sometimes the data I get says I might be awake a couple of times if I look at when it spikes, but I I might not actually know that I'm awake. Exactly. So yeah, that was the other point um, that you, this is if you remember being awake. So the National Sleep Foundation, if you remember being awake more than one time per night for 20 minutes or more is when you might 
kind of get that red flag um, going. But for you, for for everyone, we wake up multiple times during the night, but we it's such a short period. It could be it could even be ten seconds, and you won't remember that. And so a lot of times when I was scoring those sleep records. I would see people waking up 18 times. They would have an arousal of at least three seconds, 18 times per hour. So that was completely normal um, to be waking up. And it's just kind of that transition from deeper stage of sleep. You might have an, a short awakening and then you get back into that lighter stage of sleep, deeper stage. And um, you just will have awakenings or brief arousals during the night all throughout the night. Okay. Um, sleepwalkers, are they, what stage are they actually in when, you, when you're walking in your sleep? Uh, usually uh, deep sleep. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's so why you- it's so hard to arouse them from their sleep is because they're in that deepest stage of sleep. But they're actually still getting good quality sleep, even if they are sleepwalkers. Well, not, I mean, not necessarily, um, because of, you know, we need to rest and recover and our body needs to, to be fully asleep. And so a lot of times sleepwalkers, um, they'll be half asleep and half awake. So they'll be in that deeper stage of sleep, but there is, um, alpha activity going on within the brain and and a lot of times people who do that frequently um, report to have poor quality sleep. So it's not that they're getting necessarily getting more slow wave sleep. It's that this episode is occurring within slow wave sleep. Okay. And it it is typically just childhood years that you you get that. You, not many adults are sleepwalkers, are they? No, yeah, they're, um, you typically grow out of it, I think, by the age of 10 or so. Um, but we do, we do in our sleep lab here at Center for Sleep and Human Performance, we're a clinical lab. So we will see, we actually had an athlete, um, report come in, flew in from Toronto to come see us because she was having issues with that. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and then just another, uh, question with um the mediterranean countries so italy greece those kind of places um people like to think of the siestas and how they sleep, they nap during the day because they, they would say because of the heat but then i also just noticed when i was in italy that they tend to they, they seem to stay up quite late too mm-hmm. um i'm just wondering is uh when when we're talking about um timing of sleep is there a difference between countries because of things like that but yeah they're actually they're healthy i'm just uh, that would be interesting how we always look at the med the mediterranean areas very healthy because of their Mm -hmm. diet Mm -hmm. but then i was looking at their sleep habits and thinking you guys go to bed so late sometimes too (laughs) it's incredible yeah and they eat dinner really late too yeah so just Um, thinking of that body clock thing where you're eating so late so surely that's pushing your mm -hmm. circadian your body clock out of whack too yeah. yeah, it could be that they're um that they're just kind of shifted later. So um they get more of that light exposure later, they stay up later and then um you know, get a little bit more sleep, sleep in a little later and then also, you know, having the supplement with a nap um because of that later schedule. Mm. I'm just thinking uh, going to a sleep scientist conference in Italy would be quite interesting because they have they've got a different population base. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's Italian athletes versus Canadian athletes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Amy, um, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all that knowledge today. I mean, I, I've I already got so many different practical tips that you've shared there. Um, big ones was the the set wake up um, and going to bed times, the screen time. Um, there was just so much good information in that. Uh, how can people follow you, keep up to date with your work or sleep science? Um, any resources that you want to mention that I can link to at this stage? Yeah, so I'm working full time at Center for Sleep and Human Performance. So, um, people can check out our website there. And then I'm pretty active on Twitter, um, a little bit on Instagram. So people can follow me at Sleep for Sport. Great. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes for anyone listening to this. 
Yeah. And if, if there are any uh, athletes out there where um, we developed the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, so we're hoping to, to get that published soon. We had a uh, reviewer comments, so we, so we got it back right away and we're hoping to publish that so people um, can reach out to me or, or keep an eye out on the website if they're interested in sleep screening for athletes. Uh, and is this something that coaches and, and teams could Absolutely. use? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic. So yeah. yeah, I'll definitely link to that too. Um, so that people can contact you to, to use that with their, I'm just thinking here, even amateur teams, um, they don't have to be professional teams, just coaches. Oh who, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on today, Amy. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh-huh.